Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This podcast contains explicit language. Hey there, and welcome back to Candidate Confessional, the show that President Obama, I believe this is a direct quote, he's called it a must-listen. He says he's, actually, that's not true. He, he actually <laughs> said, said it's something that he might have heard about, but not have actually heard. You're right. I'm looking at it again. He's glanced at it on his iTunes feed. Hasn't, hasn't yet quite not clicked. Not quite yet, but you know, there's still time. So I'm Sam Stein. And I'm Jason Shirk. And today, dear listener, we're going to tell you the story of Sandra Fluck. Now, most people know Sandra because... Of an asshole on the radio. You're talking about Rush Limbaugh. Yes. Rush Limbaugh decided to call her a slut after she testified about the importance of insurance companies covering female contraception. And only that, he mispronounced her name. What does it say about the college co-ed Susan Fluke, who goes before a congressional committee and essentially says that she must be paid to have sex? What does that make her? It makes her a slut, right? And after that episode, she became a personification of the war on women. Yep. And to her credit, she didn't back down at all from Limbaugh, even after he went after her and after the trolls online threatened her. Exactly. She made a conscious decision to speak out against the radios. And, you know, she continued from there. So she became a forceful advocate for women's reproductive rights. Uh, she studied for the bar at the same time that she was prepping for her speech at the Democratic Convention in 2012. And then she made the decision that the best use of her time and resources and energy was in the world of politics. And so... She decided to run for the state Senate in California. In some ways, it proved tougher and more complicated than batting down a slut-shaming radio host. Beyond the bluster. Behind the bunting. Past the posters. After the ads. The campaign picks up. And the motorcade moves on. What happens when the votes are counted? And democracy doesn't go your way. This is Candidate Confessional, a HuffPost podcast. I'm Sam Stunn. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. Actually, I'm Sam Stunn. And I'm Jason Cherkis. And we approve this podcast. Why don't you tell us how it all began, basically? And that's not just the run for state senate but your congressional testimony 
Oh, sure. Um, well, I was organizing on the campus at Georgetown Law along with a number of other people. That's always lost in, in these stories is that there's a whole group of people taking action and coming together. And we were concerned about the, the lack of comprehensive reproductive health care coverage on our insurance for students. And we tried various strategies to address that. Uh, we had done some organizing on campus, collected stories. We'd worked with the administration, negotiated. Uh, you know, we were law students, so you know we wanted to sue somebody. So we, <laughs> we, we explored that path. Um, and we ultimately <laughs> came... Did you end up suing anybody? Ever? We did not okay. sue anyone. Um, uh, I, would, I would go into all the details, but they would definitely turn off the podcast okay, if I did that. Enough. So um, I will not, I'm not bore the listeners. Um, so we ultimately concluded that the affordable Care Act and its women's preventative health care uh, amendment was the strongest path for remedying the problem we were facing on campus. And so when we saw that being under attack in, in the very early months of 2012, we decided to speak out. There was a press conference at the National Press Club, and that was seen, and then I was asked to testify now, as a result were, of why that. Why were you asked to testify if there were multiple people involved in this um, I think you want the honest answer. Sure. Somebody had class at that time. and <laughs> no. Is that really the answer? Well, that was part of it. That was certainly part of it. I actually skipped immigration law to go and testify. That's an but, amazing sort of butterfly effect to that, right? Yeah, there's, there's certainly those kinds of, of moments. Um, you know, I think, I think it also had to do with uh, I was in a position of leading the, the work on campus along with some others, and uh, they figured I was, you know, decent at speaking in public. So there, so there were other things, too. But. So you get invited to this congressional panel. It's famous because there are no men on this panel. Yes, yes. Did you know in the moment that that was a massive mistake on the ha- on behalf of uh, I think America in. knew in the uh, moment that yeah. that was a massive mistake. <laughs> okay. So yes, I was aware as well that that was a massive <laughs> PR mistake yeah. on the the behalf of uh, um, Congressman Issa yeah. at the time. And then a couple days go by and nothing really happens of it and then suddenly yeah, that was weird, right? That there was all there was this time in between, and we kind of thought, okay, this has passed, and um, and then suddenly, did you just not make anything? Were you like, all right, I did my do uh, in my thing on Congress, and that's that? It often gets ignored. People yeah, testify people, people right, don't normally right. pay attention. Does it go um, viral? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Are you saying C-SPAN two isn't the most watched network no. in America? Well, <laughs> we we went back to to the work, right? I remember I was at a. A rebellious lawyering conference at Yale the next day and was talking about, you know, you probably saw me speaking to Congress. We want to keep organizing on campuses across the country. You know, we were continuing the advocacy work. Um, but no, we did not expect that there was going to be continued assaults and continued press attention. Um, and then, yeah, it was almost a week later. So where were you when you found out that Rush Limbaugh had called you a slut? I was at my internship. Which was? Uh, I was working with the ACLU National Prison Project uh, on some some elements of criminal justice reform and addressing things like sexual assault in prisons and things like that. So you're just like at your desk? Yeah, go on Twitter. Walk us through. I was an intern, so I was in my cubicle. (laughs) (laughs) What's it like to find out that? I mean, how do you find it out? Well, so um, unfortunately, in the days leading up to that, I was uh, getting an increasing number of very hostile and threatening communications through some social media. Some folks were 
uh, trying to get had found my address. We were really trying to lock these things down, but some things were getting through. And it was increasing, and we weren't sure exactly where it was coming from. And so what happened was that I was sitting at my desk when a friend called and said, I realized I figured out why this is happening. What does it say about the college co-ed Susan Fluke? who goes before a congressional committee and essentially says that she must be paid to have sex. What does that make her? It makes her a slut, right? Because I actually don't listen to Rush Limbaugh on a daily basis. No. So, <laughs> so strike, I, I, strike me yeah. as somebody who tunes in I, I know. Regular, but... Well, there's a story on that, but... Um, We're here. Uh, well... <laughs> yeah, what's this? So I grew up she in She interned a... for him. <laughs> <laughs> Prior to the ACLU, yeah. Although he did have his time where the ACLU defended him because of his whole issue, so maybe, yeah, yeah. maybe that's well, the... Free speech are... is important. You're from there. Central PA, which is very conservative. That's true. Yeah. That's true. So I grew up in a very conservative rural community, and uh, the guy who I dated in, in high school... There was just one, just to make the record clear. <laughs> um, the guy who I, I dated for a number of years in high school was a, a pretty conservative conservative guy. And uh, we originally met because I saw him in the library reading a Rush Limbaugh book and went over and said, you don't believe anything that's in that, do you? Or, wow. That's, that, that's way, my line. Those are my moves, guys. <laughs> that, that's, that is, and, how and do you was, say no to that? It's what did he say? He's like, I'm just looking, at, uh, researching the enemy or something? <laughs> or? No, he was a fan of wow. Mr. Limbaugh. Um, All right. So let's bring it back in. So you, you're sitting in your cubicle and suddenly it becomes apparent to you via various social media outlets that you have been targeted and you decide to confront it. Yeah. So I, I called my parents because I wanted them to hear this from me and not uh, from other folks. So that was the first thing that I did. Um, and then I I talked with some of the other folks on campus who were organizing around this issue and we, we thought about uh, what to do with it. And um, I I and we felt very strongly that we could not allow it to in any way appear that this had been successful in silencing me or silencing the other people who were speaking out on this issue. And that was really one of the most important things was we've got to make sure that what happens here is that they learn that they can't treat women this way and they can't silence us this way. But that wasn't sort of, as I read, that wasn't a uniformly held position. There were some that, that maybe wanted you to stop or be quiet. Just to let it blow away, yeah. basically. Uh, who who did you think thought that? It was like an advisor or something, professor. Oh, um, I don't I don't remember that being okay. a, a strong thing that was proposed to me. I think there were certainly folks who were who care about me, who were concerned about me, yeah. and who wanted to make sure I took care of myself. Um, and I appreciated very much. Well, I mean, was that there support. an element, um, a part of you that was a little bit scared of because if you've already gotten threats or people had already looked up your address, there was that kind of thing. Uh, no? It was something that I took very seriously and and addressed and needed to address, and it was certainly uh, an intimidating situation. Uh, but for me, the the thing that I remember most feeling in those moments was a determination and a conviction about how this had to go. Real quick, how did you address it? Did you move? Did you because they knew your address? I didn't. Right? I didn't move. I. Um, I had some assistance from some folks who had been in law enforcement previously who advised me on some things um, and who helped me to scrub the Internet of my confidential information. The law school was very supportive in helping. There were an incredible number of things sent to the law school that they had checked 
product and well, uh, so there was there were a lot of folks who were, we're really talking really helpful. What, like envelopes that were sketchy that you know you didn't. There want were to... envelopes, packages. Some folks sent some flowers that weren't in very good shape. That in like two or three weeks when I received them after they'd been checked <laughs> out. But sympathy flowers. Yeah, yeah, there was there was an overwhelming amount of really supportive things that were sent, and then there were some really disgusting, unsupportive things that were sent. So uh, then you go. It goes like from zero to sixty. Uh, you suddenly are everywhere being asked to do these interviews to talk about the situation. I'd, I'd like to gloss over it, but I think we need to address it. Uh, I was in the green room when President Obama called you. You were near me, MSNBC. You don't remember me, but you remember Obama for some reason. I don't, very, very strange. I don't quite understand how that happened. But well, anyways, he calls you and you're and going on Andrew Mitchell. And I would just like to apologize because I know that <laughs> white men are erased continuously yes, in yes. our society. Thank yeah. you. So I'm sorry. Finally. I'm sorry. Gets I How long have you been waiting for this? <laughs> Basically since you booked her. Um, <laughs> so I guess what for the listeners and for me too because no, this doesn't happen normally. What is it like in the back of your head as you watch you go from a fairly anonymous – Georgetown Law student to suddenly the topic du jour of the national political conversation? It was surreal. Um, it, it was quite challenging because I was trying to be a law student and not fail out at the same time uh, of <laughs> as trying to do all of this. But I, I felt uh, a weighty responsibility, frankly, is how I felt about that. And maybe that's making it more grandiose than it was or something. But, but was there something like out of body about it where you wake up and be like, whoa, I'm like going on a national, you know, yeah, it was, show. It was certainly it was certainly surreal, but uh, I'm a very get down to business person. So uh, the things I was focused on were I want to make sure I know my policy points cold. I need to know exactly all the details that I'm advocating for. I need to be prepared. You're such a liar. I know. I know. So, <laughs> so, so my my whole focus on this, uh, at least as I remember it now, was I I wanted to make sure that I knocked this out of the park in terms of the policy um, and made sure that we got we got the Affordable Care Act's birth control policy to be the strongest it possibly could. When you're in that moment, does the criticism cut through the bubble that you're in? Uh, do you understand uh, how people are perceiving you differently? Yes. I actually, um, at the time, uh, I required myself to read all the social media oh, and the emails. Whoa. and I know, I know. Bad and move. I, well, yeah, I know. Everyone <laughs> says not to do that, but I did. Um, Why? Well, because I believe it's very important to understand your opposition if you're going to address their concerns. And growing up, as I did in a very conservative place, um, I always try to draw upon that and hope to have an understanding that would allow me to, to reach across and to find ways of communicating. I, I think one to be serious for a moment, we clearly have a problem in this country. One side talks to their side and sure. the other side talks to their side and nobody tries to to move across. And I shouldn't say no you're, one. You're one but. of these people who thinks that if you just get into a room with your critics, you can find some sort of common understanding? No. That okay. would be Pollyanna-ish. Yeah. I think that there are um, there are folks who will not agree with you and who will not be convinced and and we need to focus on who we can convince and how we can make make progress. But I believe that some rhetoric is damaging and is harmful, and we need to search for the kind of rhetoric that is not. Did you feel like you had been caricatured enough that people didn't really see who you were, but they saw slut or whatever the conservative media was putting out? Uh, for some people, sure. But I actually found that a lot of people were very open to 
to who I actually was and what I was actually saying. Did you ever consider the possibility of going on Rush Limbaugh's show? No. Why not? Well, because as I said, I think we need to focus on the areas where we can make progress, and I didn't feel that that would be a way that would actually make progress. Too much of a circus. Yeah, I think that um, not all, but many of his listeners are not people who will be convinced regardless of what I had to say. Um, and I do, and I want to I be very clear about this, I think that the things that he said were insulting to every woman in America, and I would never dignify his show with participating in it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So how did how did the call with the president come about? Um, so I guess the uh, the White House was calling around town, and I just want to point out this is yet more evidence of my not sluttiness. It's hard to get my number. <laughs> okay, you've used that line before. You've used that line before. No, too good. no, I have. Um, She's a politician. Yeah. You know what? My husband is actually a comedy writer and comedy producer, and people always ask me if he writes jokes for me, which I find really insulting because I am funny all by myself. That's a, or that's at least I like to think that I'm funny all by right myself. There, yeah. um, anyway, uh, so the White House was calling around to some of the women's organizations around D.C., some of the advocacy groups, trying to get in touch with me, trying to figure out sort of which one was sort of handling me. And, of course, none of them really were handling me because uh, I wasn't actually a plant. And uh, eventually they were able to get in touch with a friend of mine who I was working with. And this was a very challenging time. And as I said, I had immigration law to go to. And she wouldn't give out my cell phone number because she was trying to, to protect me. And, you know, she said, well, I'll schedule a time. We can, <laughs> we can, she can call you. And, and they were saying a senior White House official. And, and they just – she they tried and tried and tried and she wouldn't give it out and finally they just said it's the president <laughs> the white house now tells us that we can reveal that you just got off the phone with president obama yes um, i did the stakes have been raised pretty high but what did he say to you this whole thing transpires at some point you have to make the decision that you're going to take this moment in your life and instead of going into necessarily the law that you're going to go into public service and politics so how did you make that decision? It was a, a long process. I had never, um, I hadn't been someone who was focused politically prior to this. I'd done a lot of advocacy and a lot of policy work, but I wasn't a political person. I wasn't a party person. I wasn't really an electoral politics person. And so this was very new. And uh, but quickly after these moments that we've just been talking about with my testimony and things, uh, people started asking me frequently to run for office because, of course, we know that we, we don't have enough women in office uh, right now. We have ridiculous underrepresentation at the federal level and at the state level and internationally. And so uh, I was being asked repeatedly, and 
I eventually came to feel that... Sorry, who was asking you? Oh, um, folks who led organizations, members of the public, uh, people. When I would go and give a speech, it would always be one of the questions the audience asked. Um, so uh, folks who, who believed in the things I believed in and, and thought I could fight for them. I eventually just came to feel that it was a responsibility that I had, that uh, evidently this was a set of skills that I might be decent at and that I wanted to find whatever way it was that I could most uh, effectively advance the principles and the ideas I believed in, and this seemed like the way was, to do it. Was this something you had come to a conclusion on before the DNC, where you gave a speech at the convention, or was it something after the DNC? Uh, st- folks were certainly asking me prior to the DNC, but uh, the only thing I had decided on prior to the DNC was passing the bar. I literally spoke at the DNC a few days after I took the bar exam. Really? Yeah. So, um, no, I had not decided to run for office before the DNC. So certainly you had, not. what, a couple days to work on your speech, or did you work on your speech while you were studying for the bar? I'm not going to answer that question because it reveals my procrastination <laughs> and it, uh, and the stressful, the, the stressful position I put several days. NC staffers in, unfortunately. I'm here because I spoke out. And this November, each of us must speak out. Well, I'm wondering if there was like a debate that you might have had where it's like, where you had to sort of nervously maybe sort of balance all the attention that you were getting with who you really were. And were you wondering if everyone's asking you to run and you're like, wait, is this really me or am I really the policy person before all the hoopla. Absolutely. Um, I think something that gets lost is that whether or not to run for office is also a career decision. What kind of career do you want to have? And is this the best use of your skills or are you better at a different thing? So I I went through all of those kinds of of thought processes. As many women do, I questioned my uh, qualifications and my preparedness. It's a big problem uh, that women spend too much time questioning that. Um, uh, yeah, it was, it was a long, searching process. You know, because a lot of people we talk to, the they always bring up the issue of trust. So they enter a race, and sometimes they're surrounded by people who they've never worked with before. Yes. And it's difficult to figure out if those people are in the race for their own benefit, whether it's monetary or fame right. or whatever, or not. So did you encounter problems of trust with the people around you? It's, it is a very common experience, and yes, I relate to that experience. The people who I was closest to during the campaign were, for the most part, people I had worked with prior to the campaign, yeah. so I felt lucky to have uh, an incredible team that I did feel that I could trust, but it, it, so in many ways, I encountered those trust questions Back in 2012. Yeah, but now you're now you're suddenly this you know hot commodity in the political world, and you can see maybe people wanting to sort of ride that into something bigger, right? Or no, or not. Back in 2012, I worried about that. Okay. I worried less about it in 2014. Were there people when in 20, I started the campaign? Were there okay. people in 2012 that you thought, wait a minute, they seem a little sketchy? Or... <laughs> no, I don't think there was anyone who was involved, and then I needed to push them away. The, okay. I think what I eventually um, rightfully concluded about the folks who were volunteering their time, again, volunteering their time, uh, is that they cared passionately about what I cared about. What what was the argument in your mind against running or against becoming a politician versus running? Good question. Thanks, Sam. That was a really good question. (laughs) The first time. (laughs) Um, 
I wondered whether I was the best person or if someone else could do it better because, and I, I know this sounds like a line, I just, I care about the policy outcomes. I care about the issues. Oh, so come I, on. I know, I know, but it's honest. <laughs> no, I believe so, you. I believe you. Uh, thank you. Yeah. So I, so I worried you. about whether or not I was the best person. Yeah. And um, Do you think men have that worry? Probably not. Not as much, and I think yeah. that's a problem. I think... But I'm not sure that the solution is for women to worry about qualifications less. <laughs> I think maybe. Fair enough. Um, I worry that I'm not the best for this podcast. <laughs> I think you're doing fine. Thank Sam. you. Um, that was sad. What else did you? What, oh, else, yeah, what were else were you worried about? About whether or not to to run for yeah. office. Um, it's hard to put yourself backwards so about what you thought about that. What about then? just intrusion into your private life or um, check? Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like we'd already been there. Yeah, that was already done. There was no private you life were, there left. Was, you weren't going to get that. So. And actually, I think that was um, something that got me over the hurdle that many women, specifically men, also, but women, really struggle with is the intrusion and the the public attacks. And I was like, well, I what guess I know do? how to do that. So, why did you choose initially to? Uh, well, at least consider uh, replacing Henry Waxman. That seemed like aiming high. So what happened was that it was a total surprise that Representative Waxman was retiring that particular year. And at the same time, the, the state senator who represented a very similar area announced he was going to run. And so basically the two seats opened up simultaneously. Okay. And so I had not been planning and aiming for either of them. Um, and... It was just a, a process of sort of exploring the possibilities. There were a lot of folks reaching out to me about uh, running for the House, but also th- folks reaching out to me about running for the, the state Senate. And my decision, which I struggled with, came down to that I thought that I could make more of a policy difference at the state Senate level and that that's where the issues that I really cared about were more likely to be decided and that's where I could be impactful. See, it's fine. I mean, at at the surface, most people have been like, okay, well, you've focused your time, at least as far as we know you, on um, contraception policy that's, you know, federally oriented. Of course, the House would be better suited for you. But that was the public perception. That was the public perception. Yeah. Yeah. So you're saying that that was off. Yeah, I think there's, you know... Rightfully, there's there's a lot of work that I've done on policy in many years that the public is less aware of than sure. they are of me fighting with Rush Limbaugh, right? So, yeah. uh, so I I worked a lot on human trafficking, on domestic violence, did some some gay rights advocacy work, housing affordability, a whole range of issues, and many of the issues that I really care about are at the state level. But this is also unique to California, so. If I'd lived in Arkansas, I would probably not have run for the state legislature. (laughs) So California, I think, is, and I know, is driving the conversation forward for us nationally. And the the work that's happening federally is very important. Much of it is defense right now, in addition to the executive orders of the president. But I felt that in California, we had forward momentum that we we are making happen and that's very important for us to happen. And that that is the better the better fit and role for me. And I also think that in California, we're not doing as much on the forward momentum as we should be. Yeah. Well, I guess what I just did is sort of a good segue into another question. You're doing great, Sam. Thank you. Because I I basically, you know, looked at you and saw one issue, Mm -hmm. right? And I'm assuming that when you got onto the campaign trail, that a lot of voters had the same impulse. 
Some, some certainly, but I am uh, lucky and blessed enough to live in a district of incredibly informed and engaged voters. Are you running again? Not at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Who who asked a lot of questions about a lot of policy issues. And uh, I think that pretty quickly we were able to overcome that stereotype and they realized that I'm a reasonably substantive person. How early on did you realize that you had a learning curve, that there was, you're new to being a politician and new to running for office. How quickly did you realize I have a lot to learn? Well, I found that it was different areas of the campaign um, were were easier or more challenging, right? Um, speaking publicly, giving press interviews, I, I knew how to do that at that point. Um, I was certainly expanding uh, additional areas of policy. Every candidate always is, is picking up new ones, and I really enjoyed that. I, I love policy. Um, fundraising was new for me, and that was something that took some time to, to get uh, up to speed and you, get as fast as I could. You're the one person, the the one person who likes begging for money. This is the part <laughs> of the podcast where people don't like me anymore because <laughs> I say that I actually don't hate it the way a lot of candidates wow. do. Wow, you're the first. I know, I know. What this is, is it about it that you don't hate? The win. <laughs> <laughs> At least um, you're honest. Thank yeah, right. <laughs> I, You know, I... It, I wish, let me say this, I'm actually, uh, part of my day job is working on campaign finance reform. So I'm very committed to sure. changing the system. Um, but I recognize that in our current system, we have to have resources to fight these battles. And these battles matter to me. And if what is needed is resources, then resources we will have. So I am I am all about the the end goal, and if what I have to do to get there is spend thirty five hours a week on the phone, then that's what's going to happen. That's funny because I, I maybe I misread this, but it seemed like you were powered a lot by uh, grassroots donor base in your state center race, whereas your opponent was the one getting the max contributions. No, that's true. But I that's was weird very because you had the celebrity, and you could have possibly gotten these max contributions. Well, so I think that um, I was very committed to having a grassroots campaign, uh, but that grassroots campaign doesn't have on its own. So I was personally out asking for and raising a lot of those small dollar contributions. Um, I I also certainly asked for bigger contributions uh, from folks, but I didn't have um, a natural large dollar donor base that I had already cultivated. But you had certainly a uh, women's rights, women's health, national constituency Mm -hmm. that you could have tapped into. Did you consciously decide not to do that? No, I, I reached out to okay. those folks, and they were very supportive. And I, I want to say thank you to every one of the folks who supported my campaign in whatever amount. But the de- I think the Democratic establishment was for your opponent, or they endorsed your opponent. So we had an eight-way primary, also known as a cage match. Um, <laughs> is that and a technical term? It is. Yes. It is. Really? There were it's s- like a caucus, but it's a slightly different. <laughs> wow. There were seven <laughs> Democrats and one independent in our, our primary, and then two Democrats moved on to the general yeah. election. Um, I will not go into it now, but anyone who's listening in a state that doesn't have the top two, fight it with everything you have. The top two is a terrible thing. It increases the amount of money spent in politics. It's bad for progressive policy outcomes. It's a it's a conservative tactic. Interesting. Um, so we had a, an incredibly competitive primary, and I spent a, I did a lot of work proving myself in the primary and in the general election. Uh, a lot of the the grassroots Democrats, um, the Democratic clubs and establishments were were with me in the the general election. So I think my opponent and I both had bases of but, support. But you still haven't. What did you learn? Early on, what did yeah, you learn? What back. were the mistakes that you think? What you were made? the mistakes that I made early on? 
there. <laughs> we got all she, day. She's like, I, <laughs> I didn't make you say that. I'm, I'm perfect. No, no. I'm just thinking. <laughs> I, I had a lot to learn on fundraising initially. Um, so there were definitely errors that I made there. And, and I, I grew and approached that. And now I actually do fundraising training for candidates because I want them to, to know how to do that. Um, there were sort of there's a, a list of things, but they would be so local and technical to explain. Explain. Oh. <laughs> Why not? I have a theory. I have a theory that's probably wrong, but um, I'll throw it out there anyway, which is that you had a wonkish background, and sometimes that's not the no, best No, that's suited. actually great. Thank you for coming up with my error. You are correct. Um, so throughout the primary and the general, I continue. Hold on one second. Mark down the time where she said that. Okay, <laughs> go on. Um, you're doing great, Sam. Thank you. Um, I continued to be quite policy driven in how I talked to voters and, and audiences and things like that. And I just really believe that's important. But what I have come to understand, um, in more reflection and thought is that for most voters, they care about the policy outcomes, but they recognize rationally that they don't have the time to spend analyzing policy. So what they're looking for often in a candidate is getting the feeling that they trust you and that you will fight for them. And that sometimes talking about policy detail is not the best way to convey that. Mm -hmm. And that you do need to spend more time uh, talking about yourself. And that's something that I wasn't comfortable with. Yeah. Was there an issue with, in terms of trust, the perception that you kind of parachuted in, that you weren't there a long time. You didn't, you know, the, your opponent had been a member of the school board, kind of put in the time. Yes, that was a, that was a challenge. It was an inaccurate criticism, but it was a criticism. How was it inaccurate? Well, so I had been, uh, Los Angeles had been my home since about 2007 and the race was in 2014. So that doesn't feel parachuted to me. Um, that, that guy was born and raised. He grew up in Santa Monica <laughs> High School. Uh, Swimming in the bay, hiking in the mountains. Was that, was uh, that like his... That his, was a line, yes. Yes, absolutely. You know, I, I, I want to be clear. I have I have respect for, for my opponent. We're friends. Um, that was certainly one of the angles he used in the campaign. I used other angles against him in the campaign. Was that an was that irritating? Just because I mean, oh, of course. Did do you ever have a candidate say that the attacks on them are not irritating? No. <laughs> but how, do you, how do you? But how did you combat the parachuting, the sort of parachuting problem? Facts. I, I told my story. I told how long I'd been in the community, what I was involved in in the community, and I demonstrated my commitment to the community. Um, by by being there. But, and that was actually a challenge because running a grassroots fundraising operation takes more time, yeah. so it takes you out of the community, right? Which So this is part of the challenge with our entire fundraising system is that the more time you're spending raising money, it's time you're not spending. And you spending, said 30 hours a week raising money? Yeah, about 35 on the phone. Just and on then the phone. in addition to that, you have your fundraising events and... Um, also, the types of endorsements or types of contributions you would get through endorsements by local organizations sure. and things like that. So, so just, we're talking about yeah. a state center race in which you probably spent 45 hours a week doing some form of fundraising. Yes. That's a job. Yes. One other thing that, I mean, the theme of this race, uh, in my head at least, is that 
You know, I, perhaps a lot of voters viewed you through the lens of the Rush Limbaugh incident. Mm-hmm. Did they? Did you feel that way? Was yes. It, but how did that manifest? Especially itself? in Palos Verdes, more conservative. Oh, he been he's been waiting to drop that yeah. for a while. <laughs> he studied he studied up the district. Yeah. <laughs> how how did it manifest itself though? I mean, in conversations, perhaps. Well, so it's a pretty it's a it's a pretty progressive district. Um, so remember that when we say that there is a conservative part of the district, we are talking about a conservative part of Los Angeles, California. So everything's relative, sure. right? Um, so I do remember a Fourth of July parade where someone came up to me and said, "I won't pay for your birth control." Uh, so and I said, "I don't want you to." <laughs> and let's talk about the policy facts. And she didn't want to talk about the policy facts. I'm shocked, but um, but most of the time, the way voters viewed me through that incident was complimentary and was a feeling that I think she will fight. I think she will stand up for us. I think she will be true to her principles, even if it's difficult. But was it positive in a way that maybe you didn't want? Like, for instance, you're trying to establish yourself as a multi-issue candidate with roots in the community. And even though people are coming up and saying, thank you for standing up to Rush Limbaugh, that's not the perception you want voters to necessarily see. Sure. Nobody wants to be viewed as one-dimensional, right? And yeah. so you you want to talk about other issues too and things like that. But um, you have to uh, you have to meet voters where they are. And I guess I have to ask: Would voters sometimes overshare with you, like give you too much information? Oh yeah, but that's not unique to voters, right? Um, I mean, but it may be <laughs> unique to you because you have this. You had the contraception. So issue. So anyone who works in one of these areas that. Um, that we are silent about as a society. If you have an in, uh, a very public experience or you work in those areas, people tell you. So when I worked for a domestic violence agency, people told yeah. me about domestic violence in their lives. Uh, same thing for sexual assault, same thing for contraception, uh, for abortion care. So yes, folks share very personal things uh, with me. But you know what? I feel privileged that they're willing to do that and I appreciate their their confidence and trust in me because I actually think... We need to, in safe ways, be more public about these things. On the other side of that coin, although it was a very liberal area, I mean, what were the incidents of sexism that you faced during the campaign? Yes, I think that um, electoral politics is perhaps one of the areas that is still the most sexist in our society. And I think... It manifests in lots of ways, right? Like studies show that women give less money to political contributions. So if you're a female candidate dependent on female donors, that's a disadvantage. Um, Female candidates often are given less money by by donors, things like that. The the biggest thing I felt was that there is a – there's a de facto assumption that male candidates are qualified and we require female candidates to prove that they're qualified. There's not the same benefit of the doubt. Is that subconscious or is that Yes, I conscious? think it's subconscious. Okay. I, I don't think that there are very many people who have uh, conscious intentional bias at this point, but there is unintentional bias that is, is quite rampant. And, you know, folks asked me if I had kids and if I was going to have kids and things like that too. You get that. Was there a singular moment uh, on that topic that stands out for you? Yes. <laughs> Um, I spoke at a, an endorsement, a community endorsement meeting where we both spoke and I received an email afterwards that said, you seem 
incredibly well-versed on the policy and really smart and capable, capable, and it's too bad your opponent is such a nice guy. Oh, <laughs> wow. Does, that kind of lays it out, doesn't it? It's sort of <laughs> reminiscent of how uh, the type of coverage Hillary gets on some of this stuff where it's, well, she, you know, you, seems a little mean or mm-hmm. cackles or, you know. Right, there's it, certain ways female candidates can and cannot present themselves and male candidates have more fluidity and ability. Did, people, did you have people in your in your campaign advising you on how to speak or how to, how to sort of approach a, a, a certain form because of this issue? Did anyone say, hey, maybe you should... You know, where smile more, smile more. Yeah, <laughs> that seems to be. I thing. actually was told to smile more, but I think they were right about that. I don't, and I really? don't think that was actually a, a sexist critique in in the situation. When pe- when men tell you to smile more on the street, that's sexist. Yes. Um, in the situations that that I was talking about, uh, I actually did need to smile more. I'm a bit of an intense person and very serious. So. You told to be less angry, maybe. Um, I wasn't told to be less angry. I was uh, told to. To emphasize connecting over policy technicality. You mentioned earlier on that that was hard telling the sort of more personal stories. Mm-hmm. What, why was that difficult and, and how did you figure that out? Did you, did you think you ever figured it out by the end of the campaign, how to tell that story? I think I actually figured it out after the campaign. So um, I think that I don't like it when candidates tell their personal stories and because many of them do it badly. And I don't like the sob story, uh, and I feel very false trying to um, make it sound like I faced ad- adversity that I didn't, because um, that's often what the personal story is, right? Is like this is what was so hard, and this is yeah. I came from Every, yeah. dirt, and you know, and it, I just I am a straight white person. I I just will not. Um, so yes, there there's been can be tough. <laughs> did you want to, were you tempted to just sort of lie like, you know, your dad worked as a barmaid? You know, yeah. Oh, no. Well, well, I actually was a bartender at one point. But um, no, you can't lie. You certainly can't Obviously. lie. Um, but uh, look, there are challenges that I and my family have faced, and I'm comfortable talking about those. Um, and, and that's important. But uh, I just, and I, I think, again, this is something women struggle with, is I just thought that I wanted to talk about why the minimum wage increase was important yeah, I mean, it, and all the, why we work, had to protect CEQA, and, which is an, an environmental law in California. And I'm ready to vote for you. Thank that you. I was <laughs> waiting for you. To, uh, I mean, you're right. All, a lot of your work leading up to this was all policy, all sort of behind the scenes advocating for other people. Mm-hmm. And then this was a, a race where you actually had to advocate for yourself and sort of sell yourself in ways that maybe you weren't ever – ever used to. And that's challenging because especially in primaries or in Democrat on Democrat races, and in those are the only kinds of races we have in Los Angeles, in much of Los Angeles, you, it comes down to the person because you're not going to be able to find as many policy right. distinctions, especially when many candidates hide their policy distinctions during the campaign, right? All of that. So, so it does become very personal and about why you'll be better. And that's hard. So why do you think you lost? Mm. I think a number of reasons. Um, I think that the top two system is stacked against the more progressive Democrat, and that's what we've seen in a number of races throughout California. Uh, I think probably the biggest reason is because there was a local billionaire who put in $1.6 million for my opponent. So let's not discount that. Um, uh, He and I each raised about $1.4 million for our campaign, and then there was an extra $1.6 in independent expenditures for him. So that makes a difference. That does. Yeah. 
tell us about what election it was like. Oh, it's awful. Um, the the general election election night. Uh, I was just exhausted, and like thoroughly exhausted, um, as I think probably most candidates are by the time they finally get to the 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 finish line. And I had a sense in the days before. I didn't. I, I felt that I was probably going to lose um, because we'd seen this tumult of money. And um, I just kind of wanted to get, get through it and be done. Being at the party was hard. I hate election night parties. Like, why? Why do we do that? Because <laughs> um, it's great when you win, but it's not when yes. you don't. So um, I was exhausted and upset um, and mostly just feeling feeling brokenhearted for our democracy. I was really upset about that money and how that money played and how broken the system is. And I was upset for the people who'd worked so hard for me. I felt like I hadn't delivered for them. Did you feel in a way like you were a vessel for something bigger because of that fight with Limbaugh and related to that, that your loss was a defeat that was larger than just a race? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, But mostly I felt it not around Limbaugh, but around campaign finance reform. Really? Mm-hmm. I wanted to see the grassroots campaign triumph over the independent expenditure operation. But that's not where we are right now. So what were the emails like the day after? Or what was your day like the day after? Some people have great days. I slept the whole day. (laughs) (laughs) So um, my my close friend and the person who was running my campaign called my husband at like 5 o'clock the next day and was like, it's 5 o'clock and I haven't heard from her. I'm just checking in. And he's like, she's still asleep. (laughs) Wow. You slept the whole day. 5 p.m., not a.m. Damn straight, I slept the whole day. (laughs) She'd been working 45 hours a week just on fundraising. Yeah, I I worked from 8 a.m. to midnight seven days a week for a year. I was exhausted. So um, I just slept for quite a while for those first few days, and um, mostly I was just relieved. I wasn't like, I wasn't like, oh my god, I lost me, me, me. I, I didn't feel that. I, I just felt tired and um, glad to be over the line. And um, but I did pretty quickly, pretty quickly. It was like thirty-six hours or something. Somebody told me to start talking about. So when I run next time. This is what we'll do. Right. And there will be a next time. There will be a next time if the if the time is right. Um, I don't I'm not someone who feels that I just need to be in office. I'm not someone who thinks that I'm God's gift to electoral politics or just need the ego or, or something. But I think that what I found and uh, what I continue to see in my ongoing work, I'm the state director for a policy advocacy organization in California. Um, is that this is a way that I can have the greatest impact. And so I will continue to fight to do that um, because that's that's what I want to do is have that impact. So um, when there's the right opportunity, I will be ready and ready to fight for it. That was Sandra Fluck on her run for the state Senate in California in 2014. A big thanks, as always, to the editor of this podcast, Christine Canetta, who is just, you know, masterful is probably the right word for this. The way that she can handle your 
your ego. I know. Please. And your inability to speak. Well, you know, we all That's have our... That's why she's the best. We all, have our, <laughs> we all have our faults. Exactly. You can find Candidate Confessional on iTunes and on thehuffingandpost.com. And tune in next week when we have a very special guest, the Reverend Jesse Jackson, who will talk about both his run in 1984 and in 1988 for the presidency. It's a good one. It's a really good one. Till then, dear listener, happy trails. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.